is up, everybody? Welcome to the Halftime Snacks podcast. Today's snack is going to be a little bit different. For this episode, I invited Robert Geverts to snack with us about a timely topic that I thought we could explore more deeply, the famous European Super League. Robert is a sports consultant from the UK who's a former guest of the show. He also worked with Man City, Sky Sports, and other relevant brands in the industry. Robert, Welcome back to the Halftime Snacks, man. Thanks very much. It's good to be back. Good to see you again. Okay, so let's talk about Super League, which by now, which we're recording on Thursday, this 22nd, it's, as you said, already dead. Um, it lasted a couple of days, but let's just start from, you know, the beginning. What is the Super League? How did we get here? Let's just go from the beginning. Sure. So, look, it's it's a very interesting time in, in European football where... You know, uh, the, the global pandemic has led potentially to the powers that be at some of the major clubs looking for new financial opportunities. Um, uh, I would guess that they were probably already looking for them anyway, but this has maybe accelerated some of that process somewhat. And so obviously as, as part of their ongoing conversations with UEFA around the reform of the Champions League, the teams at the very top want some more financial security some more stability, some more control commercially over where that competition was going. And maybe they felt they weren't getting what they wanted necessarily from that. And so a few of the, the, the clubs at the very top decided to try and step out on their own, um, managed to secure some potential financing, was starting to have some conversations with broadcasters around a, a breakaway competition, which in itself on the surface is not, Hugely surprising. A lot of people maybe argue that this was probably just a leverage bluff somewhat to try and make sure that they could get what they wanted out of UEFA. Um, and on the surface, again, it, it is no different to maybe what certain teams in the Premier League did 25, 30 years ago when they stepped away from the Football Association to create the Premier League in creating a new model away from the status quo. The one major difference around this at the moment, which maybe was the stumbling point, and I'm sure we'll go into talking about what, what, what went wrong, um, was the nature of creating somewhat closed competition. So ensuring that the founding clubs, 15 founding clubs out of 20, would never be relegated or removed from the competition. So always having that level of security and really removing the competition and the meritocracy aspect from the uh, proposition that really struck a chord with football fans, particularly in the UK. So that was what seemed to be the downfall in the short term of the, the proposition. Besides COVID on missing out on opportunity, the opportunity cost of missing out on bringing fans to the stands and having people in the stadiums and selling and merchandising and everything else, What were some of the other events that you think that triggered uh, such an idea? I saw a graph, probably you saw it as well, that uh, most of the teams, actually all of the teams but Chelsea had just like huge depths, right? How do they got into like such massive depths? Why they like, they are just disclosing those depths right, right now? Why, like, why now? The player uh, salaries continue to rise exponentially. And the big change was that, you know, obviously removing the match day revenues and ticket sales and that kind of thing, but the, the broadcast rights, the traditional broadcast rights, particularly in local markets, 
are not rising at the rate that these teams would hope. If, if anything, they're static or falling. And there's a, a conversation to be had around the the general viewing habits of, of consumers nowadays across TV and other digital platforms and the best ways for rights holders, governing bodies and, and teams to reach consumers. Not that we want to call we want to be fans, but the reality is they're consumers mm-hmm. nowadays. Um, and the old model doesn't necessarily work as well anymore because younger people don't watch TV in the way that traditionally people consume TV a few years ago. And so the challenge is always, how do you reach those younger demographics? And, and these teams, particularly led, it seems, by uh, Senor Perez at Real Madrid, felt like they needed to do something different to reach a younger fan base. Now, I would argue that partnering just directly with a digital streaming service is not necessarily going to be the way that you engage and interact with a, a very young demographic. But in principle, the idea was that to try and rip up the rule book and start again to try and make sure you're engaging with those audiences. Now, you could argue that actually a better way to engage with younger people is to reduce ticket prices and get younger people to come into stadiums in the first place. But again, that's a different conversation. <laughs> Yeah, like what you mentioned uh, just before, that this could be a potential leverage to push changes either in Champions League, Europa League, or in the way they distribute money, in the way big clubs uh, financially support smaller clubs. But one of the like one of the things that are ringing in my head is like this is something that takes time to plan. This is something that you know it's it's not just like a Zoom call between you know Perez and the Glazier brothers out there in Manchester and uh, probably Abramovich as well. You know, it's, it doesn't take like a Zoom call to be like, hey, let's just create this, right? It takes probably months of conversations, of discussions, of like uh, things that are happening also inside teams. So I wonder like how long it took them to figure out that this was like what they needed to do, what they needed to um to suggest at least because now it's not even going to be done but like in your mind how long does it take to plan such a project and why do you think also that planning everyone was like okay yeah this this is a good idea let's do it you know let's let's go for the money let's like why they they didn't thought about what's going to go wrong before what, like what are your thoughts around that there's a lot of potential factors that have gone into what happened and how it happened so from one point of view you look at the fact that there are out of the 12 teams four teams are owned by american owners three of which i think as a minimum have also investments in american sports teams and are much more familiar with the american sports model of business where it is a closed competition, there is a, a floor level for revenues that you know that there are secured, there is revenue sharing, there are competitive rules in place to ensure parity amongst all teams. And one could argue that the opportunity for these American owners has always been to try and move European football and by default their investment into that space first of all i'm not saying that's what happened but that is a school of thought that you could 
join dots around. The next thing I think to understand is when you take about, talk about the time that it takes to do these kind of things. W one thing that I think that actually helped this process is the pandemic in the sense that this never really got out because no one was seen meeting with someone else. No one, you know, uh, the Glazers weren't seen leaving the Madrid offices or a hotel in wherever, having chatted with this person or that person. Everything was could be done virtually, digitally, and therefore kind of untraceable in that sense. So it could have been the kind of thing that was pulled together relatively quickly. Also, I don't think they necessarily had the complete buy-in of all the teams at the same point to the same level. There will be a number of teams that were really worried about missing the opportunity and jumped on board as a last resort rather than really driving through the proposition. And again, you can probably see, if you read between the lines, the teams that jumped away from this quickly were probably the ones that never really wanted to do it in the first place, but felt like they had to because they didn't want to get left behind in whatever the outcome would have been. So I think there's a number of factors, but also there must have been initial conversations with broadcasters, but the fact they didn't go to market saying we have a deal with someone shows that those conversations hadn't been done in any great detail. And even then, it's a hugely difficult landscape to navigate because there are so many incumbent broadcasters with deals with UEFA and with FIFA that this new proposition would completely undermine their investment there. So whether it is Sky in the UK or DAZONE or Amazon even, Amazon have Premier League rights here in the UK. Would they really want to kind of undermine that investment by potentially investing in something else that would then take arguably the six biggest names from the Premier League away from that competition. So I think it was just the actual announcement process was probably rushed out and pushed out. And you could see that by the lack of depth in what was put out and therefore, you know, how quickly the U-turn appeared. Yeah, I think, I think also what you mentioned about the US American leagues, you know, the NBA, the NFL, they have systems in which they bring players from college where the worst team in the, in, in the season has the first peak next season makes it a little bit more competitive. You know, it brings in balance. Such a system does not exist in European football. I think that the way that the, the money is distributed, the access to capital, you know, being Real Madrid and coming to, you know, JP Morgan or even another bank and saying, I want X amount of loan. Uh, probably is easier to get it than like a smaller club like Apoel or, uh, you know, Zenit or just uh, any other team in Europe. So there's a lot of like micro issues that are, you know, that we can see in the current system and how it works. But I want to know from your perspective, mostly because you worked at Man City and you kind of like, you have some, some insight, you know, insider insight. What is happening behind the scenes? Like, what are the conversations between the employees at, at, at let's say, like Chelsea or Man City or, or Tottenham, or like the employees that are working there? Like, what are they talking about? What, like, are they taking sides? Are they saying, like, like how, how they, they feel or like, or like what's happening there? Do you have any sort of like insight or something? I wish I did, but I think the reality is if you look at and you read what's going on at the moment, no one knew. Like no mm. one was involved. This, 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 
these conversations were held at the highest level. And that's kind of what's so surprising was that, you know, there are some very smart people working in the industry, working at these clubs in roles that are, you know, there are more and more departments that are created nowadays around operational strategy that are, that would be employed to um, investigate this kind of scenario and figure out what's the best way to do this and what factors do you need to mitigate and, and what challenges would there be and what would be the benefits and how yeah. do we need to explain this to our stakeholders, our fans, our sponsors, our players. And it seems obvious that they weren't consulted at all, which is why this has ended up how it was. You know, from what I hear, what you read and see, you know, various senior level directors at various clubs weren't involved in this. Pro well, have come out and said they weren't involved, whether it's Paolo Maldini at Milan, whether it is the coaches and the management teams at the various clubs. You know, it, it, it just seems like this was a few guys, a few really rich guys thinking, oh, we've done investment deals before. Here's yeah. another great, I've got this great idea. Let's let's make this a huge investment and really secure our long-term financial viability in this space. But this really takes away their credibility, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, for some of these guys, I don't they think don't they mind. I don't think I don't think it, it makes a huge dent. I think it's uh, they took a risk. They they thought it would work out. It hasn't. They're still they still got loads of money. They yeah, still got big true. investments. And the worst case, what happens if? So obviously, at the moment, a number of teams are now the clubs and the fans in particular are trying to push back against the ownership. Yeah. So what happens is they say, okay, I don't want the aggravation of people hating me anymore. I'm going to sell and make money on my initial investment. You know, there's still yeah. enough rich people out there that want to buy into professional football. It still could be a decent investment for, you know, funds or really rich guys. So, you know, they don't really lose in this situation. It's just they don't win as much as maybe they thought they would in the first place. Yeah, now that, now that you mention it, I caught myself thinking, how many of the fans follow a team because of management? And the answer probably is close to zero, but um, I wonder that's... Because uh, I feel like, at least for me, I feel like a team is eventually kind, kind of becomes part of your identity. You kind of feel like you identify yourself as someone that would do the same things that your team would no? um so i wonder how many how many really get angry at their teams or even stop stop being a fan of of their teams because of these actions by as you mentioned the top hierarchical level um managers or owners and and not even consult the, the you know the strategy team in their in their own like group of uh, employees that are really you know devoted to as you mentioned do things like this properly so uh it's like it's an interest, interesting discussion i guess oh uh, yeah it goes back to the initial kind of creation of these teams that they were community places you know they were a team of guys that worked in the same factory or they were the team for the local town and it's all about part of being part of a community having shared beliefs, shared ideals and values. And so that's kind of what still remains in the eyes of the fans, of the, of the true fans. And again, part of the, the mistakes maybe that's been made is that these owners were not necessarily interested in the true fans. They were, they were more interested in the, in the global follower. 
in those, that kind of extended number that every team quotes, whether it's Man United claiming they've got 2 billion fans around the world or whatever. And even though the, actually their hardcore group is maybe more like 200,000, 300,000, whatever the number is, even half a million, you know, that are, that are going to be their highest spenders. But actually the growth opportunity is in the other one and a half billion. And that's kind of what they're looking at. Um, but what has shown is that actually the power of that hardcore has been enough to make these guys think again, because the fear is that that combined with the outside interference from broadcasters, you know, again, the cynic in me says, well, as soon as the broadcasters pull, you know, pulled back, which they probably did, and the sponsors pulled back, then actually the financial projections they put to JP Morgan yeah. around what the investment would be maybe doesn't stack up quite as well if actually Amazon aren't going to come to the table and Disney aren't going to come to the table with a big deal because it's a bit too dirty for them to get around. Yeah. And brand sponsor A isn't going to be associated with that kind of thing because they don't want it to reflect their own brand values. And realistically, the cynic in me says that that's probably what happened more than the fan backlash. Yeah, Because like we said, these guys... They don't care, you know. Yeah, they, but, they go home and cry to their bank balance. They they really don't mind being unliked most yeah. of the time. It doesn't matter. Um, I also guess that our us as fans, we want to believe that the story that you know we were the ones that uh, prevented this from happening. We were the ones that you know stood outside the stadiums and raised some you know uh, signs saying we're against. That's the story we want to believe. At the end of the day, it's also about the story. You know, sports is about the story. Sports is about uh, who did what, and and I guess that for the fans feeling that they were the ones that really you know pushed this and and it created at least some sort of pressure if it's not for them for the sponsors uh, that then were the catalysts that prevented this from happening. Then I guess that it makes sense at the end of the day. Absolutely, like don't get me wrong, right? It's it's a great story that the fans <laughs> did this, right? And. Twitter has been amazing for the last two days. Football Twitter has been the place to be. And looking and seeing the response, it has been absolute gold. Hey, what, what, what if they wanted what, is this, it actually true this to happen the, in the, the first place? What, what if, you know, teams were like, you know, you need to push some fan momentum. We need to bring fans, you know, together again. What if we create this that, you know, it makes, it makes them unite against us. But in terms, they become more, you know, passionate about it. What if, what, what if this was the plan? You don't know. Well, there's, there's only so much the fans can do. I mean, you know, I've seen many fan demonstrations at owners previously, and most of them fall on deaf ears. It doesn't <laughs> really happen. I think the one difference is this has been a totally unified situation with, particularly here in the UK, with fans from all six English teams and broadcasters and former players and everyone has been in this from the same viewpoint of this is wrong. We need to do something. We don't know what, but we need to do something. And that has now, whether or not that actually led to the U-turn is kind of irrelevant because True. one thing happened and then another thing happened that, that is a good thing. And so let's, let's take this as a big win for people. Even if, you know, the reality is probably that the money and the numbers didn't stack up at the end of the day, True. which is why some of these guys turned around <laughs> and said maybe not but you know it's it's good that you know they still do want to keep their stakeholders happy as much as possible true but 
you know, certain teams have had a track record of behaving in a way that doesn't necessarily fit with what the fans want and they've carried on anyway and they keep apologising, oh, we'll never do it again. And they do it again and they do it again and they do it again. So, you know, I, I'm not going to be, you know, people can look for the, the examples in the recent past. I'm not going to say any, any particular teams, but there's plenty of examples there where, you know, they haven't listened to the fans or they've, yeah. they've U-turned for various reasons and, and said, oh, we're sorry, we won't do it again. And then six months later, they do something else. Let, let's distill what, uh, what the problems are and just to like recap a little bit of what we talked about now. The thing is that uh, rich clubs are basically financially supporting smaller teams. They have tons of debt. They were looking for a solution that would bring them a lot of money. We understand that this is not viable and this is not something that can happen because of the fans, because of uh, all the things that we talked about. But what are some of the solutions, Robert? In your mind, you're a digital consultant. You are a, a commercial consultant. So what would you advise those teams or uh, leagues? We also talked about, you know, the, the, the problems behind uh, distribution of money, access to capital, um, the whole, you know, problem of competitivity. So what would you advise? What, in your mind, what are some of the solutions that could uh, solve these problems? I think one of the interesting aspects for me is, and again, this links into the current conversations with UEFA and the teams as well, is that one of the sticking points is that the teams want more control over the commercial sales process. So currently with UEFA, UEFA sells marketing rights to the Champions League as a group en masse, if you like. So they have five or six partners and that's it. And they own all of the inventory around the Champions League. And certain teams, particularly at the, at the top end, feel like they're getting kind of shortchanged, that they have the skills and the resources and the relationships to get better commercial deals for themselves than their slice of the UEFA overall pot. And so I, I do feel like there are some great guys out there, great teams uh, and great opportunities. So I, I think that that is a, a probably a fair assumption for a number of those teams but it does then create the gap between the haves and the have-nots that if every team were were reliant on creating their own commercial revenue then yes those top 12 15 20 teams may get an increase on the money that UEFA provide them but everyone below that is going to get nowhere near and so the challenges around well, from, from UEFA or whoever is the governing body, is that is that a challenge that you can push back on? Because ultimately, the clubs do still hold a whole load of power in that there is no Champions League and there are no big broadcast deals without some of those big-name teams. And so it's finding a solution that is still fair, but fair for the bigger teams, maybe more fairer than it is fairer for the smaller teams. Yeah, because I feel like yes. I feel like comparing it. You know, I saw this meme online, and I thought it was it was absolutely brilliant. Was that if it's 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 like if in the stock exchange you take Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft, which are the big five companies that basically move the the S and P five hundred for for instance. If it's it's like if you would take all of those five companies and that if you would you know open a new exchange just for them. 
Um, and so that, I, that, that doesn't make any sense, but that's what happens. Like that's, that's what is happening in, in, in football, in European football, you know, there's, there's big clubs that are exponentially bigger than, than the smaller clubs. And you have a, that this difference in, in power that in, in, it reflects in, in capital, which then reflects in, 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 in soccer quality or how they play. So I guess that, you know, I had just this idea having this conversation with, uh, with someone else. I was saying, yeah, but you know, in the NBA or the NFL, at least they have a salary cap, you know, at least they are capping the amount of money they can spend or they can pay, pay players. You know, it's, it's impossible. Like it's, it's just mental to think that, PSG can buy Mbappé and Neymar on this like on the same summer, you know, just just pushing out like hundreds and millions of, of, of euros to buy and form team like super teams. And then the only, you know, sanction that they get is that, oh, they can't hire anyone for another year or, or something. And so that that makes no sense because you're just allowing them to to, you know, be be unfair sometimes and then just keep their unfairness in their teams by the amount of money that they spend or the players that they bring. So that, that could potentially be another, you know, area of solution, you know, just limiting teams to what they can do and what they can't. And same goes for, for smaller teams, you know, trying to be more balanced in what, in what they have and, and what they can have access to. I, I feel like it's a, it's, it's a coin of two, two sides. The salary cap issue is always going to be difficult in the UK and in Europe because the, the kind of uh, laws and, and competition rights and, and stuff means, you know, I don't think that they're ever going to be in a position to put an artificial ceiling on what someone is able to earn. There are, you know, people can earn whatever someone feels that is their value. Um, you mentioned the NBA, and obviously the the reason why the NBA has a salary cap, yes, is part of the kind of parity rules of trying to make it fair for everyone. But it's basically because the owners were able to negotiate that as part of the CBA to make sure the costs were kept to a certain level. You know, the, the closer comparison actually is baseball and MLB. So mm. they don't have a salary cap, but they still have a closed network of teams there's no promotion and relegation. There's no incentive to be good or bad necessarily, only the competition of winning. And even then, there's only ever one winner at the end of the year. They don't have a salary cap. But they still have a decent turnover of success for teams year after year. It isn't always the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers that are in playing in the World Series every year. You know, And some teams... They, depending on their ownership, the, the amount that they spend goes up and down quite drastically depending on the caliber of talent they have and whether or not they decide it's the right time to push the button and go for it or not. And I think that's a more realistic model moving forward. Um, but the heritage and history and tradition of European football has to have the, the element of competition whereby you are rewarded for your success and you can start off small and grow bigger and bigger and bigger through on-field success to the point that you can compete at the very top. They, they can never have this closed shop nature. Um, and that's where, I mean, that was always interesting about the MLS. And I know that there was a big conversation a while ago over there when relevant sports got involved and offered an obscene amount of money for the broadcast rights on the proviso that 
promotion and relegation would happen with the USL and the wider football pyramid, at which the MLS declined that offer. And so it's something culturally that America just isn't comfortable with for whatever reason, but the rest of the world is. And so I think whilst there's going to be American owners at the moment, they will always want that feeling of security and there will always be this tension until either side kind of breaks, either and a major American sports model changes or the Americans are no longer owners within the the European sports model. Yeah, man, I love that. I love that insight. And man, it's Thursday. The episode's coming out on Tuesday and there's so many things that can happen between today and then. We could be in a very different place in the world by then. <laughs> um, but I, I think yeah. that at the moment from where we can see There's, you know, the Spanish teams who, and again, let's be really frank and honest here. Real Madrid and Barcelona are in a huge amount of debt and they were looking to try and leverage the power and success of the Premier League to try and drag themselves back up financially. So they are clinging on to anything they can to try and keep these conversations going. Um, that's not to say that they won't be successful in finding a way, whether it is through a new proposition whether it's through the newer version of the Champions League in whatever format that may be, they are in desperate need and will continue to do so. But also they know that their brand and their credibility is such that they are still needed as part of the European soccer elite. So it's, it's something that we have to watch this space and see what happens. Um, Senor Perez is, is carving quite a, a niche for himself at the moment in the kind of media space around um, some of the comments that he's got out there. And we wait to see kind of what, what the weekend brings and who knows where this may, may turn. Yeah, I, I think they can also take a few years of, you know, losses. They've been very lucrative for just dozens of years and, uh, you know, a few years of slowdown of economic recession internally. I don't think it's so bad for them. You know, it also kind of like maybe balances out uh, what's, what's happening in the leagues and, and the money that, They, they move but who knows who knows Robert um, I want to thank you so much for coming today to the Halftime Snack to have this uh, fun discussion around European Super League men um, I think we've got a lot of key insights with you today I appreciate it and I can't wait to have another discussion like this with you in the future Robert thank you man Before you leave, I want to thank you for listening. To hear this or any other halftime snack, check out the full archive on my website, which you can find on the show notes. See you next week!